0: I dedicate this sermon to my father, Rabbi Richard Hirsch, who passed away last month at the ripe age of 94, having lived a long, full, exciting and meaningful life. Yahi zichro baruch. May his memory be a blessing. In the spring of 1987, George Klein, a brilliant Swedish microbiologist, embarked on a long journey from Europe to Vancouver, Canada. Klein was a prominent cancer specialist, professor of tumor biology at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, a chair created especially for him. He wrote or contributed to over a thousand research papers and was the recipient of numerous awards for scientific excellence. Internationally recognized, Dr. Klein regularly attended conferences that brought together leading scientists in the field. But his purpose in the spring of 1987 was not a medical convention. He was on a more personal mission. He wanted to meet Rudolf Verba. Verba was a professor of neuropharmacology at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. He, too, was a prolific researcher, publishing over 50 papers in brain chemistry, diabetes, and cancer. But it was mere coincidence that the two were in overlapping fields. George Klein was drawn to Rudolf Verba because of their overlapping history. Klein had seen Verba's interview two years earlier in Claude Lanzmann's film Shoah, and it awakened in in him deep and profound memories. Forty-three years earlier, when George Klein was 19, he worked in the Jewish Council of Hungary in Budapest, the central agency of Hungarian Judaism. In May 1944, Klein happened upon a top-secret report describing what the Nazis planned for the Jews of Hungary. The deportation of the Jews from the countryside had already begun and would soon commence in Budapest itself. Hungarian Jews had no idea that their destination was Auschwitz and that Auschwitz was a death camp. They assumed they were being relocated to labor camps to serve the German war effort. The report that Klein held in his hand, however, told a different story. In dry, matter-of-fact language, he learned of the mass killings, the selections, the gassings, the torture, the brutality, the inhumanity. He saw drawings and sketches of the ramps, gas chambers, and crematories. Klein later wrote, Even as I read the report for the first time, it was evident to me that it represented the horrors of reality rather than the many unrealistic lies and self-deceiving excuses that we had previously been fed from so many different sources. And so, Armed with information that few others had, the teenager made the fateful decision that saved his life. I hesitated until the last moment, Klein later wrote. It wasn't until I saw the freight cars in front of me that I had the courage to run, despite the risk of being shot. Klein hid in a cellar until January 1945. No close acquaintances joined him. Given permission by his supervisor to tell immediate relatives and friends, Klein urged those closest to him to go underground. But he wrote of the dozen or so people I warned, not one believed me. Within two months, they, and most of the roughly half million Hungarian Jews who entered the cattle cars without resistance, were dead. Verba's interview in Lanzmann's film, Jolted Klein, reigniting powerful memories of decades past, Verba described word For word, the report that the 19-year-old Klein held in his hands all those years ago. As Klein wrote, it was immediately clear to me that the report I had been given to read under the promise of secrecy in Budapest in 1944 was identical to the report that Verba was describing. Verba also knew about the report that saved Klein's life, because Verba wrote it. He and his fellow Slovak friend, Alfred Wetzler, were among the few prisoners to escape from Auschwitz. Both wrote books detailing their harrowing flight to freedom. That they survived at all to tell the tale is a miracle of unimaginable dimensions. They were almost captured many times. During the three days that they were still in Auschwitz, hiding in a pit, they could hear above them the vicious guard dogs barking menacingly and the SS camp guards growling murderously. On the 10-day dash to the Slovak border, without documents, a compass or maps, they were so close to several Nazi search patrols that Germans only had to reach out and grab the two fugitives. For some unfathomable reason, Fortune reached out first and shielded these two exceptionally heroic young men, rewarding their courage, ingenuity, ingenuity, daring, and valor with decades of additional life. Verba said that he decided to escape for two reasons. First, like anyone else, he was motivated by self-preservation, He wanted to live. Second, he was desperate to warn Hungarian Jews that time was running out. He noticed the Nazis building a crematorium and extending the railway tracks directly to the gas chambers. He surmised that these were preparations for the Hungarian Jewish community that had so far avoided extermination because Germany had not yet invaded Hungary. He overheard SS troops joking that they were awaiting Hungarian salami. At all costs, Verba thought, Hungarian Jews must not get on those trains. Once the human cargo arrived at its destination, it would be too late. He later explained that the Nazi death machine depended on deception. The Jews needed to believe that they would be treated well upon their arrival. Otherwise, they would resist. The entire apparatus of death rested on the calm, orderly transfer of the Jews of Europe to the death camp. Verba often said that even in Auschwitz, the German insistence on subterfuge continued up to the gas chambers themselves. Upon disembarking, the condemned still thought that they were there to work. Only when they were jammed naked into the gas chambers, hundreds at a time, and the heavy doors clanked shut behind them, did panic set in at the realization that these were their final breaths. The prisoners at Auschwitz were slaughtered like pigs, Verba said. Better, he felt, that the Jews of Europe be hunted down like deer then slaughtered like pigs, to force the Nazis to hunt them down would disrupt the machinery of death and increase their chance of survival. Lack of resistance only aided the Nazis and facilitated the mass murder of Jews. At the last possible moment, George Klein having read the Verba Wetzler report, believing it to be true, and knowing what awaited him at the end of the railway line, made the fateful decision to force the Nazis to hunt him down, rather than wait to be slaughtered. The Holocaust is a mirage. The closer you get, the more it recedes. We will never fully understand. No sooner do you think that you finally comprehend that incomprehension overwhelms you. How to explain the nature of this barbarism? What are its causes? Why the Jews, of all the savageries in this sordid history of human affairs? What explains the singling out of the Jews for unique odium? Why Jews will not replace us? Why not Scandinavians will not replace us? Or Unitarians will not replace us. Why not Hindus will not replace us? There are a billion Hindus in the world. Why not Buddhists will not replace us? There are half a billion Buddhists in the world. Why Jews? There are only 15 million of us. We are less than 2% of the American population, but we are the target of 58% of all religiously motivated hate crimes in 2020. While it is, of course, true that anti-Semitism is on the spectrum of all expressions of hate, intolerance, xenophobia and racism. Still, it strikes us as different, not only in degree, but also in kind. For sure, ideology plays a key role. No other supremacist ideology is as singularly fixated on an entire people. It is not only hatred of a Jew, many anti-Semites have never even met a Jew in their life. It is the obsession with Jewry, the Jewish people. Historians now point to Hitler's Reichstag speech in 1939 as the clearest indication of what he planned for European Jewry, to wild applause. Hitler snarled. If international finance Jewry in and outside Europe should succeed in plunging the nations once more into a world war, the result will be not the Bolshevization of the earth and a victory of Jewry, but the annihilation of the Jewish race in Europe. From Mein Kampf in 1925 to his last day on earth, April 30th, 1945, Hitler remained insanely obsessed not with individual Jews but with the Jewish people. In his last will and testament, dictated from his stinking bunker in the putrid bowels of the earth. He wrote these words, The responsibility for the war cannot rest on me. Centuries may pass, but out of the ruins of our cities and monuments of art, there will arise a new hatred for the people who alone are ultimately responsible. International Jewry and its helper. The day before firing a bullet into his sick brain, this human monster responsible for the deaths of 80 million people, 6 million of them Jews, bid his final farewell to the German nation with these his last ever recorded words. Above all, I charge the leadership of the nation and the followers with merciless resistance against the universal poisoners of all peoples. International Jewry. While individual Jews suffer the consequences, the ideology of anti-Semitism focuses not on the Jewish person but the Jewish people. Anti-Semites are obsessed with what they call international Jewry or the worldwide Jewish conspiracy. Nothing you do will change their minds. Their anti-Semitism is not really about you. It is about them. It is a window on their own fears, hatreds, suspicions and insecurities. Hence the attack on Jewish diners at a Los Angeles sushi restaurant earlier this year by men draped in keffiyehs had nothing to do with the behavior of those diners. The attackers knew nothing about them. Some might have been complete atheists. Others might have been advocates of the Palestinian cause. There might have even been an anti-Zionist Jew among them didn't matter what mattered was that they were Jews they were singled out from among all of the other customers because they are of the jewish people the london jews who witnessed the caravan of palestinian flag wavers driving through their jewish neighborhood shrieking f the jews Rape their daughters. They did nothing to bring this about. They were targeted because they were of the Jewish people. The haters did not shout, F the Zionists. They shouted, F the Jews. The Orthodox Jew beaten in Times Square earlier this year by a pro-Palestinian mob was simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. Any person who looked Jewish would do. I could list thousands of such incidences in the past year. They result from and are a reflection of an ideology obsessively focused on the Jewish people as the source of all evil in the world. But ideology is not the only factor. Rudi Verba was convinced that most German functionaries in the death camps were not driven by ideology. He knew them. He saw them up close. Two years in Auschwitz bestowed upon him An expertise in human nature that even a career in psychotherapy or philosophy will never grant. You can have five PhDs in psychiatry and have written a dozen books on mass murderers. It will never give you access to the depravity lurking in the hearts of women and men as two years in Auschwitz. Verba felt that human nature, our emotions, anxieties, insecurities, ego, and self-interest influence our actions more than ideology. He noted that no German was required to work at Auschwitz. Requests for transfer were almost always granted. Many of the death camp administrators knew how horrible it was. They were there and stayed there, Verba felt, because it was good for them. They had an abundance of cigarettes, bountiful food, meaningful friendships. They had opportunities in Auschwitz to further their careers. Even the infamous Nazi doctor Joseph Mengele, who conducted brutal and inhuman experiments on living human beings and with a flick of a wrist sentenced multitudes to extermination, even he, according to Verba, exploited Auschwitz to enhance his reputation and advance his career. He may also have been convinced of Nazi racial superiority. But he was a small-time climber, Werbe thought, who did not hesitate to murder. He ingratiated himself with prominent German scientists. Since you are killing all those people anyway. Said one prominent professor to an SS doctor, you might just as well send me their brains. Even the commandant of Auschwitz, Rudolf Hess, the most prolific mass murderer in the history of mankind, used Auschwitz to advance his career. In prison after the war, he wrote with pride about the technology of death he administered. He considered it a great achievement, an outstanding professional accomplishment. Hess made no attempt to move his family away, even after he was reassigned to Berlin. His wife, Hedwig Testified that these years were the best and most comfortable years of their lives. The family would spend afternoons and pastoral weekends together on family outings. They had abundant food. The children later described the strawberries that they grew in the garden and remembered their mother's insistence that they wash the fruit thoroughly because it was covered in dust. The dust of human beings, they had free slaves, plucked from the endless supply a few hundred meters away. Why move to Berlin? They had a mansion. You can still see that house right over the fence that separated all that is pleasant and pleasing about life from the nine circles of hell. It is true that there would have been no Holocaust if leading Nazis did not believe in Aryan racial supremacy, but ideology alone was not enough. Most people are not ideologues. We are followers driven by our own needs and deep-seated insecurities. Everyone feels vulnerable. Everyone is susceptible to suspicion, manipulation, hate, fear, envy, anxiety, uncertainty, flattery, and conspiracy if granted permission by authority figures to act upon these impulses, if the Pandora's box of all manner of human evil cracks open even a little bit, our worst qualities will escape and find their way onto the political jet stream polluting, and contaminating the atmosphere of the globe. That is why anti-Semitism is so dangerous. The Jewish people is, and has always been, the perfect scapegoat around which to organize and rally people to politically extreme causes. It is nefarious Jewish power, somehow centrally organized, that stands in the way of peace, prosperity, liberation, justice. Thus, communists could accuse the Jews of being capitalists. Capitalists could accuse the Jews of being communists, nationalists could accuse the Jews of cosmopolitanism, and cosmopolitans could accuse the Jews of blind loyalty to the Jewish people. The hard left can accuse the Jews of being white and complicit in racial inequality, and the extreme right can accuse the Jews of being an insidious enemy of the white race. Do you think that the centuries-old hatred of the Jewish people has disappeared? Why? Because you happen to live in the world now and do not know or care to forget the 2,000-year history of anti-Semitism? Toni Morrison wrote, Before there is a final solution, there must be a first solution, a second one, even a third. The move toward a final solution is not a jump. It takes one step, then another, then another. Do you think that your ignorance of all the small solutions to the Jewish problem that eventually led to the final solution obviates in any way the desire of the anti Semites of today to pick up where the anti Semites of yesterday left off? If anything, Ideologies of annihilating the Jews are gaining currency. The capabilities of anti-Semites have increased exponentially with the advent of social media. Out of control, Jew-hatred metastasizes online. How terrifying to contemplate the extraordinary organizational capacities this new medium affords. Imagine how much easier it would have been for Goebbels had he had social media at his disposal. The explosion of anti-Semitism awakens in me a deep, dire, depressing, demoralizing dread. If there is one lesson to absorb from the Holocaust, it is when someone proclaims an intention to exterminate the Jews, believe them. Take them seriously. Iran threatens Jewish extermination all the time. Hezbollah threatens Jewish extermination all the time. Palestinian Hamas and Islamic Jihad threaten Jewish extermination all the time. Now, I've emphasized repeatedly here, I am not opposed to legitimate criticism of Jews. Or the Jewish state. Even when I believe such views are wrong, misinformed, biased, or unfair. To the contrary, everyone needs critics to prevent them from doing stupid or immoral things. Not all criticism of Israel is illegitimate or unwarranted, and certainly not anti-Semitic, but some of it is. And in some places, like college campuses, a lot of it is. It is undeniable that hatred of Jews foments Hatred of Israel foments hatred of Jews. Attacks on Israel lead to attacks on Jews. Now if I were to have a philosophical conversation, I could accept the proposition that in some cases anti-Zionism does not constitute anti-Semitism after all, there are plenty of anti-Zionist Jews. However, the extent and the manner of the single minded obsession with Israel often bleeds into hatred of Jews and normalizes Jew hatred to an extent not seen since the darkest days of the 20th century. One step then another, then another. Israel is a country whose evilness is self-evident in the minds and the imaginations of the deluded. In many places. It's normative now to view Jews as white oppressors even though the majority of the world's Jews are not even white. Zionist has become a curse word. Another term for racist. Wild accusations of ethnic cleansing, crimes against humanity, genocide, against the only actual democracy in the Middle East. These are blood libels, different only in form, but not in substance, from Jews poisoning the wells or kidnapping children to drain their blood to bake matzahs. Multitudes believed these back then as well. They were already conditioned to suspect Jews, having been fed centuries of lies and conspiracies. I want to explain to you why I spend so much time here focusing on the anti-Semitism of the hard left. It's not because I believe that there is no anti-Semitism on the extreme right or that it is any less pervasive or dangerous. There are more anti-Semitic incidences on the extreme right than the extreme left. But I am a liberal rabbi, and you are liberal Jews. And in my view, many liberal Jews are misled by the high-sounding rhetoric of anti-Zionist students liberal professors, thought leaders, influencers, media and social media personalities. For some, the term social justice now means that Israel is to blame for racism in American police departments. Even our own Jewish concept of tikkun olam. Repairing the world has been co-opted by some and distorted to virtue-signal their moral purity. 20% of American Jews, one in five, believes that Israel is committing genocide on the Palestinians, according to a recent Pew study. One in five. What a colossal, catastrophic failure of the American Jewish establishment, rabbis, teachers, schools, all of us, everyone. It's my job to counter these messages. If you don't hear it from me. You won't hear it at all. Even many rabbis nowadays fear telling the truth, the truth that they know to be true but are too intimidated by their congregants or whatever, too intimidated to express. You may not agree. Some of you might be bubbling over now with frustration. But it's still important that you hear my views. Perhaps at some later date you might reconsider. And all the rest of you, you might be fortified to hear that you are not alone. What you have been thinking is what I think. The need for a fair, equitable and peaceful settlement to the Israel-Palestinian dispute is urgent. Both peoples have an indisputable claim to the land and to human dignity. But pro-Palestinian activity — especially on college campuses — all of you college kids who are here and listening online. Pro-Palestinian activity is often led by those who do not seek accommodation with Israel. They seek its annihilation, and we call that anti-Semitism. Israel for the first time since antiquity is home to a near majority of the world's Jews. More than half of all Jewish children in the world live in Israel. Threats to destroy the Jewish state are threats to destroy the Jewish people. When they shout, Palestine free from the river to the sea, they mean destroy Israel. Free Palestine for them does not mean coexistence with Israel. It means Palestinian existence without Israel. Ask them. They don't hide it. They simply rely on your ignorance and naivete because they spout words that sound progressive to you human rights, civil rights, indigenous rights, anti racism, anti apartheid, anti colonialism. For them, it is nefarious Jewish power, centrally organized by Israel and supported by world Jewry, standing in the way of peace, prosperity, liberation and justice. That is what justifies assaulting Jews in a sushi restaurant. By virtue of their Jewishness, they are complicit in the worldwide Jewish conspiracy to suppress human rights organized and financed and led by the Jewish state. If these agitators were truly about human rights, they'd be concerned about the real threats to human rights. The thousands of missiles indiscriminately fired upon Israeli civilians from Hamas, A terrorist, fundamentalist, misogynistic, gay-hating regime implacably opposed to Israel's existence and implacably committed to Israel's annihilation. What in the world are progressives doing supporting such people? If they were truly concerned about human rights? They would be concerned about the 500,000 Palestinians still confined to Lebanese refugee camps 73 years after Israel's founding. They would speak against the rampant anti-Semitism and blood-curdling threats to annihilate the Jews. They would advocate on behalf of the hundreds of millions of Arabs and Muslims deprived by their own regimes of human rights and human dignity. You speak about ethnic cleansing and not a word, not a peep, about Muslim Uyghurs in Chinese concentration and re-education camps. You speak about massacres and not a word about the thousands of Palestinians and other Syrians gassed to death, and the hundreds of thousands butchered by a brutal dictator. How dare you equate Israel with Nazis? Have you seen what the Nazis did? Read the Verba Wetzler report. Visit Auschwitz yourself. See the mountains of human hair that the Nazis used to stuff pillows and furniture. Look at the piles of shoes, the dolls seized from children, the eyeglasses. See the luggage with the names and addresses of the condemned from every European city of high culture and advanced philosophy belonging to people who, as Rudy Verba described, were convinced that they would need this luggage upon relocation and who couldn't fathom that the most cultivated society in the history of the world would kill them upon their arrival. That was the Nazis. We should reflect deeply on our withdrawal from Afghanistan. It's not that Americans are bad people. Despite the chaotic withdrawal, we did many good things there. Of course, the United States has its share of xenophobes and racists. But more than any other country, America has opened its doors to the tired, the poor, the huddled masses, yearning to breathe free. But the lesson of Afghanistan for the Jews, a lesson that we should have learned a thousand times, is that if you want to survive, especially in the Middle East, you need to rely on yourself. You cannot subcontract your defense and protection to anyone. Least of all, faux human rights activists and their deluded American Jewish supporters who sit in ivory towers, intellectuals who write and think all day, who preen with academic arrogance but are incapable of understanding what is really going on in people's hearts. Preoccupied with their own shallow self-righteousness, they ignore even basic human emotions, motivations, and drives. Bleeding hearts, who have no heart for bleeding Jews. It's all academic for them. We should have the courage, the decency, the honesty to say that our side, the liberal side, is wrong. We too are writing and supporting untruths, vicious, malicious voracious, fallacious, rapacious, audacious, lies, all of us, especially young adults, teenagers, university students, you need to feel anti-Semitism, feel it in your kishkas, You know the difference. It's been handed down to you generation after generation after generation. Learn to appreciate subtlety, nuance, and context. Develop the capacity to distinguish between legitimate critique and the new mutated form of anti-Semitism dressed up in the garments of Logical anti-Zionism. If you oppose Israeli policies, say so. Be active. Try to influence and make a difference. But whatever you do, you cannot give comfort, cooperation and credibility to those who hate your people. Often what they oppose is not the excesses of the Israeli military, but that a Jewish army exists at all. You know, Jewish tank commanders, Jewish fighter pilots can be disorienting to a world that had grown accustomed over the centuries to passive disempowered Jewish victims, the kind that Rudy Verba described. Rudy Verba and George Klein spoke for 10 straight hours that spring day in the faculty lounge of the University of British Columbia. They parted as old friends. Destiny bound them together forever. Klein learned that Verba considered his report a failure. He escaped in order to warn the Jews of Hungary what awaited them at the end of the line. Yet the Hungarian Jewish community was largely destroyed. Hundreds of thousands were gassed within hours of their arrival in Birkenau. On May 27, 1944, two additional Jews escaped from Auschwitz. Czesław Mordowicz and Arnošt Rosen. They arrived in Slovakia six weeks after Verba and Wetzler. By then, the destruction of Hungarian Jewry was in full force, precisely what Verba and Wetzler had surmised and were desperate to prevent. Wetzler and I saw the preparations for the slaughter, Verba later said. Mordovich and Rosen saw the slaughter itself. President Roosevelt read the Verba-Wetzler report sometime in the summer or fall of 1944. Although nothing like the eyewitness account and detailed sketches of the machinery of extermination were previously documented, the broad intentions of the Nazis to annihilate the Jews of Europe were known as early as 1942. The Americans knew. The British knew, the Swiss knew, the Vatican knew, even the New York Times knew. The victims themselves did not know until the doors were slammed shut and cyclone pellets were released into what they thought were shower rooms. The Allies never bombed the tracks or the gas chambers, as Verba urged, Roosevelt insisted that the best way to save the Jews of Europe was for the Allies to win the war as quickly as possible. For his entire life, Rudy Verba regretted that his report failed to save the Jews of Hungary. George Klein reminded Verba that he saved at least one Hungarian Jew, and according to our tradition, to save one person is to save the world entire. Furthermore, said Klein, you played a role in saving at least a hundred thousand, perhaps two hundred thousand, Hungarian Jews. In the aftermath of the report, International pressure was placed on the Hungarian regent Miklos Horthy, and he intervened to stop the deportations in July only one week before the final scheduled transport of the Jews of Budapest. Klein suggested to his new friend that even if Hungarian Jews had read the report, most of them still would have gotten on those trains. Denial is natural, said Klein. He told Verba that he shared the report with 12 other people, and none believed him. George Klein lived to the ripe age of 91. His split-second decision to run from the freight train enriched the entire world. He was a pioneer in microbiology and was credited, along with his wife, Ava, for laying the foundations of modern tumor immunology. He and Ava had three children. They were married for close to 70 years. Ava, 96 years young, is still alive. Rudy Verba died In 2006, at the age of 81, he rests in a little visited cemetery on the outskirts of Vancouver. A simple footstone marks his grave. Rudolf Verba. September 11, 1924. March 27, 2006. There is nothing to mark the heroism, the sheer force of will, the daring, the courage of this extraordinary man. Perhaps it is fitting the best of us are driven by life forces so deep, so unfathomable, that words never do justice. One of the lucky breaks that contributed to Verba's survival in Auschwitz was his assignment to what the prisoners called Canada. That was the warehouse designated for processing the stolen goods of the transported Jews. Whatever valuables could fit into luggage was there food, clothing, money jewelry hidden in coat linings and even in tubes of toothpaste. Those who had the great good fortune to work in Canada could sneak away enough food to increase dramatically their chances of survival. The prisoners called the warehouses Canada because they heard that Canada was fabulously wealthy and Canada was filled with figs, dates, lemons, oranges, chocolate, cheese, butter, cakes, and other luxuries like soap, cosmetics, and silk shirts from the finest stores in Paris. Perhaps it was fate that Rudy Verba ended up in the real Canada. Or maybe in some mysterious psychological way he was drawn to Canada after Canada saved him. He picked himself up from the valley of death and got on with life. He had two daughters, one of whom sadly predeceased him. He had two grandchildren. He was successful, accomplished, and respected. It is the best response to those who hate Jews. Keep moving forward. Find meaning and purpose. Help others. Show compassion. Fight for justice. Defend your people. Resist evil. Warn the world. It was important to know, said Rudy's wife, Robin, that even though he went through all that misery, he still had a very nice life. He had a lot of humor and a lot of joy. He enjoyed every moment of his life. It pleases me that this was so. If anyone deserved peace, and tranquility, if anyone deserved a full life, it was Rudolf Verbo. Those two years in Auschwitz remained inside of him for all the rest of his days. Forevermore he lived in two countries, Canada and Canada. He never forgot and never forgave. The original title of his book was, I cannot forgive. Still, he overcame. Nothing that life could serve up would be worse than what he had already endured. It granted him perspective, the kind that only the deepest suffering gives. He learned to appreciate every gift of life and never to take anything for granted. Many of my visits to Eastern Europe and the concentration camps have been in winter. I always think how unbearable it must have been for the prisoners to endure the elements undernourished and inadequately protected from the brutal cold, the steel winds, and the sweeping rains. Rudy Verba must have spent many days shivering outside in the cold rain of southern Poland. I was moved, therefore, to have heard Robin say that even the incessant rain of the Vancouver climate never depressed her husband. While others would complain, Rudy Verba's response to a storm was always, Isn't it nice to be inside?